You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Living in a box with Marcus Veer on keyboards and synthesizers, Anthony Titch Critchlow on drums, and Richard Derbyshire on vocals formed in 1985 and released their first single, also titled Living in a Box, two years later. That track reached the top five in the UK and the top 40 of the Billboard charts. During my early years at MTV, their songs were played on heavy rotation. They released two successful albums and had a string of hit singles. But in 1990, when Derbyshire left, the band split in accordance with the contract they'd signed back in 85. In 2004, they reformed for a one-off gig with the original lineup. But this was not to be, and over a decade later, Titch and Marcus returned to the stage with a new vocalist, Kenny Thomas. This year, they're out on the road again, not with Kenny, as he had other commitments, but with Brian J. Chambers, who has sung for Pink Floyd, Beverly Knight, and who's been a backing singer for Prince, Mark Armand and Grace Jones. The story of the band, and particularly Marcus Veer's story, is intriguing. He might call it luck, he might call it right place, right time, but in the end, it's also the story of a combination of the right talent. So Marcus Veer, living in a box, this is a great pleasure to talk to you <laughs> because, you know, you created tracks that were very important to me uh, in the 80s. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm going to enjoy this. I know I am. I hope you do too. Uh, we're somewhat of a similar age. I'm three years older, but I'm not going to quibble about it. You might. <laughs> but I feel that we're of similar age. So we may have had some sort of similar experiences growing up. Now, you, I believe, grew up in Sheffield. Um, what sort of town was it and what sort of early years did you have in that town? Uh, Sheffield, uh, you know, in the 80s or late 70s and 80s when I was a teenager, uh, was, was a really vibrant scene. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why we all got into music because we were influenced by our local bands. I mean, we had so many, um, you know, Martin Ware with Heaven 17, um and before that human league um you know there was a massive local band scene with abc uh, and so on and the, you know the list goes on um and we were hugely influenced by that and there was a really good sort of pub scene where you can nip out to the pub and you would see any number of great bands from you know clock dva to you know there must be russians and all these kind of really funky name bands um and became you know some of them became really huge you know international stars and you know i remember seeing abc one of their videos on top of the pops walking by a sort of uh, rediffusion TV rental shop in the eighties and thinking, crikey, that's that lad came from Sheffield. That's where I am. And it, no, it really does inspire you, you know? So um, yeah, that was, that was incredible. And then we had the limit club, of course, which was probably three or 400 capacity club that had most of the bands that we all know of from Elvis Costello to the police to George Michael, when he was going out with wham, who probably played their first ever gigs there. And in fact, B-52s played, what was sort of largely um, accoladed as their best ever gig at the Limit Club in Sheffield. Um, and I remember being there to see that show. And, you know, it was just electric. Um, I want to come back to that in, that in a little while. I'll come back to the Limit Club in a little while because I think I've jumped a bit here. What sort of music did your parents listen to? And when did your taste diverge from your parents? Um, my mother was a big uh, Burt Bacharach fan. And I still am, really. I mean, there's glamorous 60s orchestral and and horn arrangements and the, and the movies that they were often attached to 
was just, you know, the glamorous side of the, of the living in a box sound came from that, really, with the horns and the string arrangements, although we were moving on to synthesizers. So it's, it's the essence of what, what that brought to music was, was definitely Burt Bacharach or Burt Bacharach and Hal David songs. Um, yeah, and she was listening to some 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 Supremes, uh, Motown, um, you know that kind of stuff. So I was really interested in the three minute pop song formula that was coming out of the states in the sixties. Um, yeah, my my sort of sound diverged. I think when I got influenced by what else was going on in the charts at the time, I was at school uh, in seventy seven when punk had reached its massive uh, apogee, and that was really exciting. It was so irre- irreverent and uh, anarchistic. And that was quite exciting. And I think in terms of the lyrics, which we'll probably get onto for living in a box, using words like that and ideas like that probably are a slightly post-punk sort of phenomena. And and so I got that inspiration from from all that I was hearing there. I mean, I remember being at school and everyone at school wanted to be a pop star. They didn't want to be a a copy of someone. They wanted to be uh, an, uh, an original pop star. I mean, music played, particularly, I think, for our generation, probably more than any generation, such a massive role in our lives. And also I was fascinated by artists. And later on, I realized they they represented something that I was hoping for when I was younger. For instance, David Bowie being the outsider, the alien. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to get the hell away from my existence as a teenager, you know, with all these problems that I had. Was it similar for you? And who did you actually sort of hook onto musically at that point? Well, I think you're right. I mean, this is some of, you know, arguments or discussions I have with my kids about music today, which we won't bore. We all know the sort of uh, churned out radio formatted um, stuff that comes out today that I have difficult differentiating between certainly musically and certainly image wise. And this because we don't have the individuality that we have now. I mean, it's arguable that the Ziggy Stardust or Hunky Dory for, for, you know, um bowie it, that you know they probably wouldn't even be able to get signed today um you know so we were listening to a lot of music that was really individual so there were people presenting themselves with the fashion they were wearing the look they got the videos they were making with the mtv culture um and the brand loyalty that went along with that if you were into a band you listened to every aspect of their record you looked at that sleeve um you, you you were wearing what they're wearing or whether you were a goth or whether you were a new romantic and the whole Spandau thing and the Blitz Club in London was taking off at the time which was hugely uh, exciting to me to be able to even I was up in Sheffield we all heard about it and the, and the local scene you know in a way with the, the lead mill later and the limit club before it the the you know the, the, the whole clothing and the whole thing that um came from that that and you know obviously with culture club coming up it was like wow you know we've got somebody here who's you're not quite sure gender-wise, amazing sort of influences with the reggae and ska, with pop music. And it was all these wonderful blends that were going on that people were seemed to be experimenting and coming up with a, the 80s music that, you know, this, when, I, when, when we're doing these sort of tours now, I just listen to that one thing that sort of threads them together, which is the 80s. Um, you know, it's unmistakably 80s, but there is so much diversity in the sounds and the way and the formats that the people were using to write their songs and express themselves. It was incredible. One thing, uh, one person you mentioned is Martin Ware, who I know is a good friend of yours. Martin, of course, is, you know, one of the greats in electronic music and what he's actually achieved throughout his life has been uh, uh, immense. But he mentioned to me about a sort of uh, a youth arts centre called the Meat Whistle, I think it was called, which was in Sheffield at the time. Right. He used to go. And this was something that brought him in contact with other people of 
you know, the same type who were interested That's right. in That's developing right. music. Did you have, let's say, a sponsor or a mentor or someone around you who who really, it might have even been a teacher or someone who sort of pushed you to be uh, creative or maybe even your parents? Well, I think it was when I was learning to play piano. I mean, at school, when I was very, very young, I got one of those Bon Tempe organ nasty little things. Um, <clears throat> started playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and all that kind of stuff when I was very young. And then I went to school and yeah, I couldn't really play the keyboards. They made me play the piano, which was a good thing because the learning certain, I got up to about grade five, which is not by, is by any means genius, but it was enough to give me the basics and the technical ability to express myself. Which I think, you know, obviously from an instrumental point of view, you've got to be able to do it, otherwise you remain, you remain perpetually frustrated. And um, I got to about grade five and my piano teacher said to me, um, you're going to give this up, aren't you? <laughs> and it was because of playing all the classics. And I thought, well, this is getting a bit tedious now. So he said, look, let's forget this. Let's go and get listen to some stuff in the charts. I'll teach you about harmonics and you know, uh, harmony and uh, you know how to improvise and all this kind of stuff. And it was that moment that kept me into music um, where I'd hit that T-junction where I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for him. So, yeah. Now, you mentioned the Limit Club. I presume this came after school and uh you know had you sort of studied and had your o levels or a levels or whatever we did at that time and mm. and then you worked for the limit club or did that come what what age were you when you actually went there so yeah i did my a levels left school at 18 i wasn't really ever going to be a university person as my kids who are now sending to university i was saying i went to the university of life and I'd go yeah great excuse dad for titting around in, in the limit club um but i did i started work at the limit club when i left at about 18 um and handing out flyers and putting up their fly posters anything really to get involved with what <laughs> i found to be a complete magnet for for creativity in the music scene in sheffield in the 80s um did you ever get into so trouble for doing that yeah oh yeah i mean it was like a manchester mob and a sheffield mob who'd be out in the middle of the night putting up those by 40 by 30 quads or whatever size they were slapping on the you know the wallpaper paste sticking on a poster and then doing a runner um and then the manchester squad would come and stick their stuff over the top you know and, and then we you know all that kind of stuff and handing out flyers and all that kind of thing it was great it was really exciting because you could um you, you could sort of feel that you're part of something you knew that you knew what was coming up that no one knew and I sort of went from there really to being asked to sort of get involved in, because I was a young kid and they were slightly older, the owners of the club said, well, you know, you seem to be into the scene. What, what should we be putting on here? And it, I suddenly started getting involved with actually booking the bands at the Limit Club, um, which was really exciting because it, get me, it gave me a relationship with all the agents in London, which I didn't know at the time, but would eventually become really useful to me with Living in a Box in terms of meeting business pe people. Um, and then they bought the, the Lyceum Theatre and I started working, really booking all the bands at the Lyceum Theatre for a while. And then they were booking shows all over the North of England as well. They set, they set up a separate promotions company, which I was sort of involved in quite heavily with doing, you know, the clash at Leeds Queen's Hall or whatever, whatever. And um, it was through that that I met Titch and started the band. In terms of the bands that were there, you mentioned some. I know there was, you know, U2, Kid Creole, um, the B-52s. I mean, there was a sort of a, a massive diverse mixture of artists that sure. I presume you had the opportunity then of seeing live what totally. do you, what did you glean from their I know they were they were on the, the a lot of them were on the way up in their careers at that time they weren't necessarily sure. at the pinnacle it was one of yeah. the sort of early days um what did you glean from the performances do you think that has become 
useful in your life and what did you understand from them by being around them? Well, as you say, there was a huge diversity of music. So some of the sort of more sort of um, schizophrenic nature of a Living in a Box album. So you've got the ballads and the sort of um, West Coast R&B flavoured ballads in one end and you've got the sort of more frenetic, hardcore um, beats of Living in a Box and Generate the Wave and, and, and Gay Crashing, which has got the, the other side. So I think it was the diversity of artists that I was seeing that made this living in a box not necessarily cleanly identifiable because it's got quite there's quite a big wide spread of, of influences in, in what we do. Um, and so I think it was seeing the bands live. First of all, you know, seeing live music is just insane. I mean, it's insane when you're 18 or 20 years old and it's still as magical to me today as it was then. So seeing them being involved in the backstage, putting them on, understanding what a rider is, organising, you know, the sound and getting the crew in early and then dealing with the public, selling tickets, promotions. You know, that gave me a very rounded idea of what it is from one end, just taking on the music and enjoying it as a punter, but also getting involved from a business aspect and what really goes into putting on a show. But did you want to be a pop star or did you want to create music? Yeah, instantly. I I just suddenly thought, yeah, I can play the piano. And rather sort of selfishly and probably, um, although as it turned out, it was, it was okay. Um, I thought, well, I can do that. I can do that. I, I, ha- I, can, under- I can understand that with music, we all have some kind of, it's, it's like magic, right? Music is, to me, is magic. Um, some people can be involved in the magic and create it and others can't. It's, you know, we can all do different things, right? You know, but I just sort of thought, I can do this. I can, I, I, I can do it. I, I can see the way that I want what I do to get me up on that stage. I mean, it's funny because I've been, obviously, you know, in my work in, throughout my life, I've interviewed, you know, really many, many uh, pop stars. And I've always uh, had the feeling that most are incredibly regular people, but then you find people that are that break a little bit under pressure because there is an immense pressure on someone being in the public eye, being on stage, creating music and and also the problems that come with that because you're not always no one's always successful with what they create do you know what I mean so that can also be a problem did you um did you talk did you manage to talk to them about who they were or were you sort of in a position where you could just observe no I was I was very much a junior partner in the whole experience even though I was actually booking the acts I would deal more with the tour manager than I would with the artists the artists even though as you say they were on the ascent in their careers uh, I was too busy just making sure that the show went well from a business point of view but then at the end well the band were actually on it was that that was the point where I was going you know I'm wearing two hats here I'm watching what's going on I'm hearing the music that's influenced me and partly choosing the bands that the, the because I I love what they do and I wanted to be involved in their tours in Sheffield or wherever else we were promoting them and then I was going on with my business hat and going, right, so how much money? What's the break even today? How much cash do they want? So, you know, and all sorts of craziness that would go on in the, in the 80s, you know, with, with art, dealing with artists from a sort of more of a managerial point of view, rather than me having time to go. So, yeah, Kid Krill, tell me about the coconuts. They look like really hot babes. I mean, you know, do you, don't you? I mean, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, or Shalimar who would come over and I was, oh, yeah, nice to remember. Love that tune, man. You know, I might get to say that. But beyond that, I, I didn't really get to get into it, into any deep, meaningful combos. This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with eSIM. 
while saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash save. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Were you already writing music at that stage? Well, I was right. Yes, I was, actually. It was although it was strangely, I was sort of more influenced at that particular time by some of the West Coast virtuoso musicians. So someone like Larry Carlton, who's a sort of jazz guitar um, aficionado. And we had a little band that I set up in my dad's uh, warehouse that started off that was just playing live, like Greg Phil and Gaines, the Crusaders, that kind of a sort of really nice uh, sort of roadsy chops and beautiful guitar parts. And Titch got involved and started playing the drums. So we had a little trio, but it wasn't actually formulating three minute pop songs that were commercially, um, um, you know, sort of... uh, sensible in, in that way it was more just sort of getting into the music and the skill and the and the yeah they just just I don't know just getting into a, a musical fantasy land in a way it wasn't it wasn't I say songwriting per se it was just getting them getting our, our, our chops going on on, sh- on our musical instruments it's very instrumental based so um, and that later came into play because because of course like I was saying to you before grade five on the piano doing classics is one thing then going into a bit of a jazzy kind of like, let's just get these musical chops going and have, enjoy just not writing a formatted three three minute pop song to eventually doing exactly that. There was a process. Um, so when did you actually meet Titch and what was your impression of him? I, I, I don't know if you met him at school or you met him actually sort of later because of this live venue. Yeah, well, I met him because um, we were doing the Clash at Leeds Queen's Hall and that particular tour was... Uh, they wanted local band support, um, and so because I was really involved in 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 the local band scene, um, it was fairly easy for me to get tapes together of local bands and reach out through the Star in Sheffield or whoever else it was. I can't remember. We, we just said we're looking for t- you know we're looking for support for this. So of course we were flooded by demo tapes, um, and one of the demo tapes was a band called Typhoon Saturday, who uh, Titch was playing drums with at the time. I, I actually found out where the promotions office was and came in and said, listen to this man, this is just going to be, you know, we'd love to do the support. Um, at the end of the day, they didn't get the support, but I thought the drums were amazing. And in a totally selfish way, I was saying, mm, I could really do with a drummer as good as that. Um, and I said to him, look, we, we can't put you on at this show, but I am putting something together. Um, and in the meantime, he was working on the Moor on a market store in Sheffield. Um, and we, we were at the Lyceum Theatre and I said, do you want a gig as a, like, have you ever, do you know what a follow spot is? And he said, no, what is it? He said, well, you know, when you're on stage and you follow people around with the spotlight, CSI follow spots, so the big massive things in those days, that, you know, got up to about 300 degrees centigrade and burn your face off. But you, but, you know, so he said, yeah, well, it's, I don't know what it was, five pounds an hour, which is quite good then. So he came down and he got on the follow spots into the Lyceum Theatre for some show or other. And we started chatting and getting on and it's like, he was like like me, really into it, and we just became really good mates. And was you know as you do, you start talking about music and and all that kind of thing. We got on so well that we started to put a little band together. And I remember Live Aid being on uh, at the time, and as me going around to his or him coming around to my house, and I was watching Live Aid, going, Jesus, this is just 
this is amazing. I mean, these are, look at what, what's going on. Uh, the artists are incredible. Um, we've got to get a piece of this. Surely we can do this. And that, was that 84? I'm not sure if it was somewhere around there. Um, anyway, so we hit it off really well and started rehearsing, started playing. And then we, we did that jazz thing, which I was talking about. And then we got into a studio and started recording songs and, you know, for about a year or so. Um, and, and yeah, that's how we that's how we met, basically through me being in the promotions business and him being applying to be a you know, support act. What was the moment that you realised that what you were writing uh, could be successful in the right combination with the right people and so on and so forth? Um, I think when I when we I'd first written the backing track to Living in a Box as a backing track, actually for this sounds so out there, but we had a friend of ours who had a a hotel chain who we'd met on holiday. I mean, Chips went away to Greece. And he got a couple of Sheraton hotels in New York and he, he took pity on us. I think he thought, well, here are a couple of down at heel musicians and they'll never do anything. But listen, so he said, why don't you look, uh, we've got opening a new bar. Why didn't you write a jingle um, for this bar in, in, in the States? And um, we'll put it on the radio, we'll pay for it. And so I went away and wrote, what was the backing track to Living in a Box? So somewhere out there is a jingle with the backing track of Living in a Box on it. And they paid us for it. And then I started... Think as I was listening to that backing track, Titch and I were in the studio. I took it home. I had about a week or so before this, had a conversation with a mate who said, "You know what? I feel like I'm living in a box." And he was living in High Park flats in Sheffield, and I didn't think anything more. It's just something that sort of stuck in my head. And as I started to sing over that track, I sort of worked. I thought, well, that just sits so tightly on that beat. And, you know, you've just got to have that moment where the lyrics and the music cannot be separated. And you think, well, that is pretty awesome. And I remember saying to Titch, right, this is how it goes. And I sang it to him over the top. He said, you can't have cardboard in a song. I mean, what sort of shit is that? And I went, well, no, you can have cardboard in the song because that's precisely why. Because it's, that's the one that is the earworm where people go, what? Oh, yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I understand what living in a box is about and what that means to me. Um, and that was probably the moment when it was like, wow, I think we've really got something here. Although it wasn't really until Richard sang on it in the demo studio that it was then, then it was like, okay, no, not only got the melody, the song, the lyric idea, which is a bit kooky, then this dude sings on it. Wow, now we're in business. Were there other, were there other words that came up apart from cardboard? Uh, no, no, because I was looking for that syllable that just dropped on that. And uh, and that's I think it was sort of slightly biographical, autobiographical. Um, you know, I was at home in just outside Sheffield in my mum's house. I hadn't really left home then. I mean, I sort of had a girlfriend in Sheffield, so I was doing going toing and froing. And we, this my mother's house was about twelve miles outside, and I was feeling, you know, like you said, you know, frustrated with with my life, and I wanted to to break break down the what I would proceed with just sort of almost was like some kind of feeble mindset that was the only thing that was stopping me getting to where I wanted to go and that is the cardboard box you know that it is breaking through the cellophane line again cellophane I'd stick another weird word in there um and yeah so that that's what it was all about really and it just sort of came and I think I wrote the song I mean literally once I'd got it maybe an hour I got it down I was like gee I can't get it out of my head this is awesome and that, to me, was the, you know, as, as we went on to and record it, it became what it became. I mean, you mentioned Richard Derbyshire. What did you know about him before that moment? Because he was in the same studio. He was, time, yeah. He came he? In, and that's, sorry. Yeah, he came in after us. Um, we were just 
I think we were reeling off. We were, I think we were looking for other singers and we got other people in and I'd put a guide vocal on living in a box, really reeling off the quarter inch or the half inch tape as it might've been in those days. And Richard was waiting to come in next. And we'd heard about this amazing guy. And we'd had a, we'd got an engineer who said, oh, there's this guy coming in. You know, I don't think there was a chance that he'd do your stuff because he's a bit more middle of the road, a little bit more Chicago, a little bit more, you know, I mean, he's got the most insane. He's Michael McDonald. He's a you know, white kid, but you think he's black. And it's like, oh, wow. OK, so we met him. And here comes this blonde Elvis, amazing guitar player, walks in. He said, Marcus, that's that. that I love that tune. That is so on it, mate. He said, well, I said, would you stick a guy vocal on it? Um, and he said, all right, well, I've got 10 minutes. Let's see how it goes. So he stuck a vocal on it. And of course, it's just like, oh, my God, I mean, it's done. We're done. Um, and I said to him, you know, were you up for, I don't know. I don't, actually, I don't think I said anything at the time. I think he was trying to crack on with the session, but I got hold of him the next day and said, this just sounds incredible. You're up for doing something together. And he said, well, I'm looking for a solo deal. And uh, on my own, I'm not really interested in being in a band. And I said, well, we've got the song. You've got the voice. Honestly, mate. And he went, yeah, I can tell. I can see what you're saying. So I said, if we can just do another couple of demos and I can go to London with Titch and we can try and get a record deal, you carry on doing what you're doing with your stuff. And if you get a record deal and you fly with your stuff, well, tough luck to us. But it's almost the first across the post. If I can get a deal with this, we didn't have a name or anything. Um, and he said, well, if you can get a deal, I'm in. And, Did you ever yeah. think about the dangers of having three people where two of them are friends and mm. one of them is an outsider. I know immensely talented and so on. But yeah. did it ever come up in your mind? Uh, could, you know, could this be a dangerous sort of partnership? Absolutely. I mean, it really did. And it, it turned out to be so. I mean, um, yeah, there was always Titch and I. And then there was Richard. I mean, listen, let's, let's get, get to it. We had the most amazing time. And we still remain great friends to this day. But there was always going to be a little bit of, of Richard wanting to do a solo career. Um, and do his solo thing and he you know he's a songwriter in his own right um and so yes there was but we just took advantage of the moment we were in you know to be honest it was just like listen this guy is just so good um i could wait around for another couple of years and never find anyone as good as that who you know who was a lovely guy and he's a lovely guy you know and, and it, you know so yes there was always at the back of our mind both titch and i spoke about it at the time it's like this might not be for the long term but let's just go with it now, you mentioned before that working at the Limit Club, you got to know agents, you got to know people that were connected to these stars that were working there, and these people were in London. Were those the people then that you went to initially? Who did you go to to, to actually get a deal? Did you go straight to record companies? Did you go to someone else? Um, Titch and I jumped in a car once. We got Living in a Box, Generate the Wave, and one other, I can't remember, off the first album, um, and jumped in a car. And in those days, it's not as easy now, but I suppose you could still do it. We arrived in London. For some reason, we came off the M1, drove through into the centre of town, stopped up in Holland Park, and there was a red phone box, which is still there to this day, and got in it and opened up the yellow pages and started at A for A&M, met them, current work B, C for Chrysalis, and we got a record deal. Um, we'd also talked to MCA and Virgin and it all got a little bit crazy. They all went freaked out and this is a hit. We've got to sign you. And we had to get a manager who then had to hide us in a hotel because it all got quite, you know, Simon Drape and Richard Branson and us down onto their hallowed barge and made a veil and we talked to them. So it was literally, yeah, listen to us. We're here. We're Northern lads. And, and they, you know, they still to this day, 
uh, Chris Wright would go, I remember you walking in, you know, you're about two foot off the ground. You knew you'd got something. And we thought, okay, well, we'll listen to it. You know, can you imagine trying to do that nowadays? It's all like, oh, no, sorry, you've got to know the right people and it's all a bit digital and, you know, send me some stuff. How many followers have you got? We just literally tore the doors down and went, listen to this. Um, and yeah, everybody we played it to just loved it and got it totally. I mean, the way that you say that is is a sort of one-sided way because there's three guys, you know, that, well, let's say, you know, you and Titch is particularly coming down from Sheffield, um, going to get a deal and being excited, you know, being two foot off the ground, being excited. Record companies weren't always full of nice people. Do you know what no. I mean? You oh, yeah. and, and I know you weren't completely green, um, but were you aware of the deal and were you aware of what you were signing into and what you were sort of entering at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, we, we, well, we started with a publishing deal because they helped broker the final deal and we got Chris Morrison who managed, you know, Major and Ultravox and had managed Thin Lizzie and, you know, was doing, you know, did really well in, in terms of, of, of helping us understand what we were getting into. In retrospect, we made a mistake possibly with going with Chrysalis because at the time they were absolutely a mess in the States. So we never really got to get a piece out of that pie, which was over 50% of the world market at that time. So we were recouping out of less than half of the world when that living in a box turned out to be a hit in every country of the world. Um, although it only got to number 17 in the charts in the States and then they pulled the independent pluggers off and then that was the end of that. So even though they were doing well with Billy Idol and Huey Lewis in the news and, and they were absolutely smashing it out of the park, unless you were signed in the States by Chrysalis, if, they, if you were signed in the UK, they kind of felt like they'd inherited something that they then got to go and sell and didn't really matter. They didn't have any personal investment in it. And that was very much, in hindsight, a mistake to sign with Chrysalis. But we were happy that we had got the record off the ground. Listen, we had a hit record, a great career with them, but it was limited in terms of what we felt we could have done in the States. I mean, remember that we're living in a box when that foot record first broke in the UK was on Tony Brackburn's Radio London show. And he had Bobby Womack in the studio at the time. And he played the 12 inch Arthur Baker mix of living in a box three times back to back, which he's never done before or since. And Bobby Womack decided to go off and <laughs> take the record and try and put out a seven inch version of that with MCA in the States before we got our record out. So when the Chrysalis ended up having to injunct that, but the, 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 the the process we went through with Chrysalis, we, you know, we really had a great time with them and, and we did very well in, in everywhere else. But the big bugbear with us and part of the reason why we didn't really go beyond uh, the second album was because we just couldn't recoup in the States. And, and then Richard particularly was found that hard to, to, to swallow. Um, it's like we've given you a great record that's perfect for, for the States. And listen, to this day, people still in, in America know the song really, really well. But we didn't feel we got our just desserts there. So that was the big mistake. How did you get to work with Richard James Burgess? That was a sort of, you'll be working with Richard James Burgess, um, who, by the way, is currently in West Hollywood. And we're going, right, great. <laughs> Fantastic. We're freezing our yin-yangs off in Sheffield. Um, we're just looking at trying to buy houses in, or rent house flats in London. And about two weeks later, we're in West Hollywood. It was, I mean, he'd done uh, Trapped Colonel Abrams, to be less flippant about it, which we thought was a great record that sounded really mighty like we wanted to sound so that was the key really it was just like okay well that also is you know the, the original idea was just to go and record a single go and just go and record living in a box but we got on with him so well and we had a, such a good time uh, we were reluctant to come back to the rain so i think we were you know quite happy to go and, and record with, with richard he'd also um done you know i mean he was really 
uh, one of the first major producers in the <coughs> era of new romanticism, wasn't he? To cut along. That's the right. I mean, it's short. I mean, yeah. I mean, he had started the landscape. Track. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I know he's worked yeah. on some fabulous things. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, he'd worked on some fabulous things. Um, I think we found personally that when, when we actually got to it, I don't know, because we, we've actually just found, we think, the original demo of Living in a Box, which I still haven't heard, that, that Titch's brother's just moving house in Derbyshire, and he said, it's in the loft, I can see it. I can't wait to hear it, because in my head, I always thought it was even better than the finished master. And I think sometimes when you, as a recording artist, if you've done a great demo and you've got all that energy and that was the one that got you the uh, the record deal, you were emotionally attached to it and then you've got to start again. It's, you know, the technology wasn't such, especially for us, recording on an eight track, that you could just put the stuff out like you can now or tinker with it and stick it out because you recorded it on a Mac in digital pristine land. So going over it again and recording the whole things again, again, was sort of, uh, we, we found that quite hard work and we're never really satisfied with, with the finished record. Um, we also had some some technical issues. I think the, um, the the engineer was blowing a lot of coke up his nose at the time. So we ended up having to get Tom Lord Algy, who just won an award for Back in the High Life again, Steve Winwood, who just won a Grammy for that, to mix or remix it, because we had to do a lot of re-recording to get it to the point where we could put it out. Now, you said that you, you, know, you went to LA, you just signed a record deal, you went to LA... Yeah, and at that point, you hadn't had a hit, obviously, because it was pre. Nope. Uh, nope. But you'd gone to LA, and there you are. You're probably on cloud nine, I would have thought, going there, totally. thinking, oh, God, this is this is amazing. What a life. What happened in LA? Well, LA, uh, well, listen, I, I don't know how how, uh, how far we can go on this conversation. Go as far as you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, LA in the 80s, what can you say? It was It was insane. And to know what happened in Hollywood... You'll have to listen to part two, where Marcus continues his story and talks about the difficult time immediately after living in a box, his amazing Kids Trucks TV success, and about the new lineup of the band as they prepare to return to playing live. (laughs) 